Coming up, the Stanley Cup Finals are set as the quest to capture sports' biggest trophy commences tonight between Montreal and Tampa Bay. With that said, I'll put to rest the Islanders' playoff run, which fell one game short. I'll dive into all that transpired with a look ahead to a huge offseason and a bold prediction for the team next year. CP3, otherwise known as Chris Paul, is one win away from finally reaching the NBA Finals for the first time in his career. Will the Milwaukee Bucks slam the door on the Atlanta Hawks' magical postseason now that they're ahead in the series? I'll have all the latest in Major League Baseball, including the first ejection of a pitcher since the new rules were instituted on doctoring baseballs. Wimbledon starts today, my hero in zero of the week. All that and a lot more on the 200th episode of the J Reels podcast. But first, this message. Hey everybody, J Reels here to share a friendly reminder. If this is your first time getting an opportunity to listen to what it is that I have to say about what's going on in the world of sports, welcome aboard. Or if you've been a long-time listener, not only do I welcome you back, but I want to advise you all to please subscribe, rate, and review the J Reels podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. Of course, this pod is on all platforms. On Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, CastBox, Player FM, even Amazon Music. I not only host this endeavor, but I independently produce, edit, and write what you read and listen to. So your participation is vital to not only support the podcast, but increase the visibility, fuel the growth and expansion of this platform to those who aren't familiar with it. You could also share the show or a particular episode by posting on social media as well. The purpose of this is quite simple, people. To generate interest to those who aren't aware or know of this podcast, especially the former or current athlete, the broadcaster, blogger, sports writer, studio host, etc., as I want them to share their experience on the field, the court, the press box, broadcast booth, or in the studio with me, so then I can flip that to you guys and gals to deliver top-notch, fast-paced, entertaining, informative, incredible sports talk unlike any other for everyone to listen and enjoy and to keep coming back for more on a week-in, week-out basis. You could also go to my website at www.jreels.com for more information about yours truly, the podcast, archive shows, etc. I appreciate you all for your support. Thank you very much for listening and believing in me. I hope you come back for more as your trusted source on everything that's happening in the world of sports. So with that said, the J Reels podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it. He is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J Reels Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's doing well, feeling fantastic, in great spirits, and why not? It is summer. It is hot here in the Northeast. It's going to reach close to 100 on the heat index, maybe a little bit over. But with that said, we're just a few days from July. The halfway point of 2021? Are you serious? I don't have to tell you, it all goes by in a snap. So enjoy it, people. Whatever it is that you're doing, you may be at work or in the middle of doing something where you're not on a beach or in the pool or somewhere just taking a leisurely walk. 
If you're doing so, I greatly appreciate you stopping by because as time has flown by, so has this podcast. To think this is now episode 200 that I'm about to embark on, I've been doing this for over three years and it feels like it's been three months. So first off, to those who are listening for the very first time, I'm excited to have you stop by. I thank you for taking the time out to listen and giving me the opportunity to entertain and inform you on what's happening in the sports universe. And I hope you like what you hear and that you come back for many, many more in the weeks and months to come. And for my regulars, my mainstays, whether they're my day ones or anywhere between that and 199, I thank you guys and gals for supporting the podcast, showing up week after week, listening to what it is that I have to say as being your trusted host for all things sports. And in a day and age where we have plenty of options to absorb and digest content, I am truly grateful and thankful for you sticking with me over the course of the last 199 episodes. And I hope you come back for many more as well as it is a Monday, June the 28th in the year of our Lord, 2021. The J Reels What's the Deal segment. What to expect on this podcast is as follows. We have our first pitcher who's been ejected for using a foreign substance, or was it? Did the umpires jump the gun in tossing Mariners pitcher Hector Santiago in yesterday's game versus the Detroit Tigers? Is this a controversy that's going to brew whether or not that this should be justified? I'll talk about all that's happening throughout the major leagues and get into baseball as it's pretty soon will be the only sport in town as they approach the halfway point of their season. You got to wonder what is going on inside the mind and body of Chris Paul as tonight he can make his first ever trip to the NBA Finals as a player with a victory over the Los Angeles Clippers. Now they do have a 3-1 series lead obviously and they could take the next step as a franchise to its first final since 1993. But I'll get into that storyline, why the Clippers may not be dead just yet. Also, will the Bucks throw the hammer down against the Hawks as they are two wins away from the finals themselves? Plus, there are some familiar faces and new places when it comes to head coaches throughout the league and even a possible rumor with one of the biggest stars in the NBA. I'll get into that later on in the podcast, as well as Wimbledon as it kicks off today for the first time in two years. Remember, Wimbledon did not have a tournament last year due to COVID. So with Naomi Osaka out and Rafael Nadal not participating, there's also another top player, in fact, a defending champion who won't be performing at the Old England Club. Also, who can threaten Novak Djokovic's quest to try to get the third leg of the calendar Grand Slam as he already has the first two in his back pocket? Some NFL news and notes, of course, my hero and zero of the week. As I kick off the 200th episode... For all sports fans, whether you're the casual sports fan, the one that pops in and out over the course of the year, or just focuses in on the postseason in particular, or for the diehard like myself who follows every moment of every minute of my teams, whether it be the Mets, the Celtics, of course the Steelers in football, but when we think of Game 7, those words are probably the best in all of sports when it boils down to a winner-takes-all series. And we've already experienced some crushers for fan bases in Toronto and in Brooklyn. High hopes for two organizations that were dashed in what seemed like an instant, leading into a long offseason with more questions than answers. And as a fan of my teams, I've certainly experienced some brutal Game 7s myself, especially in the last 15 years. Just three years ago, when I had a young Celtic team, minus Kyrie Irving and also Gordon Hayward, were on the precipice of making it to the NBA Finals, but were thwarted by LeBron James and of all people, Jeff Green, 
as they ripped my sports heart right out of my chest as the Cavs went on to the NBA Finals and spoil an opportunity for the Celtics to make it back there for the first time at that time in eight years. And then we could just rewind eight years prior to a Game 7 at the Staples Center between the Lakers and Celtics where a subpar Kobe Bryant who only shot 6 for 24 from the field but did grab 15 rebounds and the biggest shot of the game was made by Ron Artest as the Lakers were able to exact revenge two years prior after losing in Game 6 at the Boston Garden to where it left me feeling empty and wanting that victory just as much because it was against the hated Lakers. And then who could forget Game 7 of the 2006 NLCS where the Mets had an opportunity to go back to a World Series for the first time since 2000 and they fell up short having a bases loaded threat in the ninth inning on the heels of the miraculous Andy Chavez catch robbing Scott Rowland of a home run but we all know Carlos Beltran standing at home plate with the bat on his shoulders and as I've said before and I've said it a million times Babe Ruth could have been up there and he would have either done the same thing or he would have swung and missed because that Uncle Charlie from a one Adam Wainwright, I don't care if you had a bat the size of New York State, you were still going to miss that pitch. And now to come full circle and culminate on what took place Friday night in Tampa, an Islander team looking to go to their first Stanley Cup in 37 years. And with an embarrassing Game 5 performance to where they got shut out 8 nothing. And as I said on this podcast last week, it didn't look good. And I certainly didn't feel good going into this game. Because Tampa, for whatever the reason, they're a team that kind of floats in and out of these games. Maybe they rely too much at times on flicking the switch to be able to turn it up against their opponent. And we saw that. Last Monday night where Steven Stamkos was 45 seconds into the game, scored the first goal. And I said that the Islanders had to make sure that they had to squash that initial wave, those initial first five to seven minutes of the game, in order for them to kind of stabilize it, to play their game against that high-flying lightning offense. And as we saw, three goals in the first, three goals in the second, Two to top off in the third, and the Islanders had to come home down three to two in the series. And then what took place on Wednesday night, down two nothing to the Lightning, where the Lightning had scored 12 unanswered goals when you think back to game four in the third period, and up until the middle of the second period to where the Lightning had the edge. And the Islanders needed to get a goal in the worst way. They couldn't go into the third period down two. And then sure enough, Jordan Eberle scores on a backhand. Scott Mayfield with about eight minutes to go in the third period after blowing a two-man advantage that they had a golden opportunity to get back in the game and didn't. In fact, I believe the two-man opportunity was in the second period before the Eberle goal. And then the Islanders pushed it into overtime and just a little bit over a minute in, Anthony Beauvillier was the hero with the steal from Blake Coleman after the turnover and top-shelfed it over Andre Vasilevsky. And here we are to Game 7, knowing that they were 60 minutes away from making it to a Stanley Cup final against the Montreal Canadiens, and I'll get to them in a minute. But when the game shook down, all you have to do is just look at the one play in the game which the Islanders all year, in a shorthanded situation, did not give up a goal. They had the only power play of the game. The first period was kind of like 
a heavyweight fight, trying to make sure who was going to take that first blow or who was going to be on the offensive. They were feeling each other out in that first period despite six games in the books and knowing how each of these teams play. But when the Islanders had an opportunity on the power play and for them to draw three guys to one portion of the ice to where Yanni Gord coming off the bench was the only guy streaking toward the net and for him to, from about 15 feet, beat Semyon Volomov to the back of the net, one nothing early in the second period and you thought, ugh, as long as the Lightning do not get that second goal, there's no way that the Islanders will be able to come from behind twice. All right, in your home arena, that's one thing, but to do it on the road was definitely going to be tough sledding. And as the game transpired, the Islanders were trying to get any type of offense or at least a semblance of an offense going here. We know that the Islanders' opportunity seems to come in waves. They're not a team that's going to attack the net. In fact, I think they're too much of a team that looks for the perfect pass or looks for the perfect shot opportunity. But the one thing, as great as the Lightning offense is, their defense is also top-ranked. You saw it throughout the series. Yes, they've had their lapses. If you look at Game 6 and if you want to even go back to Game 1 early on in the series. But the Lightning clamped down. They suffocated the Islanders. They had a couple of opportunities. Anthony Beauvillier had a missed tip direction that went and grazed off the crossbar. You also had Beauvillier early in the first period. Had a breakaway there. If he had 15 feet of ice a little bit more, chances are he would have had a better opportunity to score there. But Vasilevsky just got a pad from an extended reach of the stick by Beauvillier. But the Islanders didn't really have a flurry of chances. I get toward the end of the third in that last scramble... They had some activity and some traffic in front of the net, but nothing that was really substantial and nothing that really made you say, oh, they could have been in the net or, oh, they had an open net there. I know there was a point there in the third period where Matthew Barzal had an opportunity to where he had a wide open net and didn't really have a good shot attempt. It was almost a fan. The puck was bouncing, but he did have an open net, even at a tough angle. But again, it wasn't a clean quality scoring chance, which eluded the Islanders pretty much for most of this series against Tampa. And when you look at what Semyon Varlamov did, he was heroic in this game. The guy stood on his head. This easily could have been a 4 or 5 nothing victory. He was fantastic. And on the other side, I understand in the record books, it's going to be another series-closing shutout for one Andre Vasilevsky. But let's face it, this guy didn't have to sweat a lick. He faced, I believe, 18 shots in the game. At one stretch, the Islanders had three shots on goal over 24 minutes. It wasn't as if Vasilevsky was making save after save, was standing on his head and just stoning the Islanders at will. That was not the case, but I get it. It's going to be another shutout in the books. And the Islanders, what could you say? They just fell short. It was a tough loss. It was one that they're going to head into this offseason thinking about, especially knowing that they had a power play opportunity and squandered their first shorthanded goal of this entire season not just the playoffs even going back to the regular season they did not give up a shorthanded goal and then Tampa did not have a power play in game number seven at all even with a hurting Nikita Kucherov who you could tell he was laboring on the ice didn't make some plays at times but wasn't 100% and if you recall in the game six effort after the first shift he was done for the game I know Scott Mayfield had the cross-check over there with the across his 
ribs or toward his back. And then later on, or during that same shift, he went to try to take a run at Matthew Barzal, who, if you recall, in Game 5, cross-checked Jan Ruda in the face, where Barzal only received a $5,000 fine and not a suspension. So the Islanders got away with one there because that could have warranted a one-game suspension, if you ask me. But the Islanders, as good as they were throughout this postseason and the ride that they took us on, unfortunately, weren't able to take us to the next level. And again, you have to credit Tampa in their defense and how they played. They're very underrated and underestimated in that regard. People think that they're more of a high-flying offense finesse. We've talked about it here for the last couple of weeks. But they really showed their fortitude, being able to backcheck, being able to block shots. What it seemed that every so often, and that's where the Islanders, they got trapped there. Because instead of trying to dump it toward the net or trying to just get the shot on net, you never know, a rebound, a lucky bounce, etc. The Lightning were in their heads in that regard. And now they're off for summer vacation where it's going to leave them wondering whether or not this team is going to bring back some of their wily veterans, i.e. Andy Green, maybe even Kyle Palmieri or Travis Zajac. I think not. Or the restricted free agents and a one, Anthony Beauvillier, he being at the top of that list and wondering if they're going to have a shot to re-sign him as well. If you ask me, the Green, Sajak, Palmieri, I don't see the Islanders re-signing. I'd be very surprised. Andy Green, who was valiant in these last two postseasons, he is 38 years old. I don't know if the Islanders want to go that route, despite his veteran presence and what he may mean to that locker room, even just being there for a year and a half. Zajac gives you nothing. I know he's more of a defensive forward than he is a scorer, but Zajac, he has to go onto other pastures. I don't see the Islanders resigning him. And Kyle Palmieri, I get that the Islanders need some goal scoring, and rightfully so, but I don't know if he fits into their plans as well. Really what the Islanders need, and it's funny because talking to one of my dear friends who's a diehard and lifelong Islander fan, I feel that the Islanders, of course, they could always use more scoring, but I think they need a guy who has the attention of the room. A guy who's won a Stanley Cup elsewhere. A guy who could bring his veteran leadership to a team. And even though he brought up Anders Lee, who is the captain of our team. And yes, I'm sure he would have been more than what the Islanders needed to bring them over the top. But at the same time, he's a guy that hasn't won anything either. So if the Islanders had their own version or brought in a version of a Mark Messier, let's say... When you look at the Rangers of yesteryear, all those years in Edmonton winning the Cups, and then in 91, he comes to the Rangers, and we all know what happened three years later. They finally are able to rise the Cup over their heads for the first time in 54 years. To me, I think they need a guy like that. Now, are there any Mark Messiers that are out there in the NHL right now who are available? Off the top of my head, I can't say that, but I think they need to have that type of guy who knows how to win a Cup to bring whatever it is that he can. Even if he's not a big goal scorer or if he's a defenseman or a guy that's a a two-way player, whomever it may be, to me, they need that guy. Because just like even with the Mets in a different sport, when the Mets were making their turn in the 80s and they brought in Keith Hernandez and Keith Hernandez won those that World Series the year before in 82 with the Cardinals. And even though they brought Gary Carter in 85 and Carter hadn't won anything with Montreal, but he was the final piece. 
But you need to have those guys. You need to have that guy that could bring not only just the young guys along with them, but their valuable experience and their trials and tribulations of a professional hockey player in this sense to take that team to the next level. To me, I think that's what the Islanders need. Who that guy is, I do not know. And that's why for Lula Lamorello, it's going to be a very interesting offseason as to try to bring that type of guy. And he knows better than anybody. So I'm sure he's going to start working his magic sometime soon. And I'm going to say this before I move on to the Canadians. As far as the Islander fan out there that's wondering, yes, it was a successful season. Yes, we went one step further. Really just another game further because we lost to Tampa in six last year. But here's a prediction I'm going to make for next year. And mind you, I don't even know how this team's going to look. Same for Tampa and the rest of the league for that matter. But the Islanders have to get to a cup now. We've made it to the cup semifinals in back-to-back years. And in this year, that much more closer. So the team can't go backwards. They have to make it to the cup next year. So what I'm predicting, I get it that they won the last two years, but let's have a trilogy. Let's have Tampa and the Islanders one more time. Just like the Pistons had to get through the Celtics, just like the Bulls had to get through the Pistons, let the Islanders get through Tampa. And I don't want to see them in a first round, and I don't want to see them in a conference semifinal. I want to see them in a conference final. Next year, to where I'm going to predict that if the Islanders face the Lightning, God willing, in a conference final, they're going to sweep them. And for this reason. One, the Islanders, I would think, would be ready to take their game to the next level based on the experience of these last two years. Two, even if the Lightning do not win the Cup, knowing that nine months ago, they were in a Cup final and won, and then they're going to have to do it all over again in a full season starting in early October, through the rigors of the winter, travel. Now they're going to get to go in and out of Canada at this point to where they're going to have all these minutes, all these games logged in such a short amount of time to then do it for a whole full season, I can't see them doing it three straight years. I don't care who they bring onto the team. I can't see that happening. So I hope to not see it in a first round or in a conference semifinal. I want to see it in a conference final. I'm going to say the Islanders sweep Tampa to get to a cup, and then we'll see who they play then. But... You got to give it up for what the Islanders did this year. They did take it one step further. They closed out the old barn in great fashion and in grand style with the overtime victory. What the fans were doing by throwing beer and water bottles onto the ice at the end of the game made absolutely zero sense. I mean, what are you doing? I mean, you could actually see that this debris that was thrown from the stands hitting the Islander players. Uh... What happened? Did they think that the Islander Blue was the Tampa Blue from a row team? What was going on there? I mean, that was just inexplicable. I don't know what the hell they were thinking, but at least there's that lasting memory of that game. And you know me, there's no such thing as moral victories, but that was one that at least we could take home and think back on this last season at the Coliseum, at least with a smile on our face and not them losing that game to where Tampa would have won in back-to-back years in six games. So... We have that, and then the Montreal Canadiens, what could you say? Speaking of Magic Carpet Rides, here they are, four wins away from their 25th Stanley Cup victory in their franchise's history. We all know they're the Yankees of the NHL. And what could you say? From the last time we spoke, they dominated Game 5 in Vegas. 
Stormed out to a 3-0 lead. They end up winning 4-1. Mark Stone, the guy who was the hero in the series against Colorado, nowhere to be found for Vegas in this series. And then with the clincher in Montreal in front of, I guess, what, 25 or 3,500 fans, they get the big overtime goal there by Arturi Lekanen, where the score was tied 2-2. And then for him to get the game winner in their building... To rejoice, and I know everybody was outside in the plaza there, all the fans from the Canadians as they win a game six, beat the Vegas Golden Knights, put them out to pasture, and now you have a scenario where you have a David and Goliath in my estimation because as we've talked about several times over the last few weeks, the Montreal Canadiens not only crawled into the postseason, They literally were on life support. And yes, they made it to the postseason without a hassle, but they lost five straight games heading into their first round series matchup against Toronto to where they lost three of the first four. And then Toronto collapsed in typical Maple Leaf fashion as we've seen over the years in the first round. And then the Habitant just took off from there. Sweeping Winnipeg winning this past series in six, and now they're going to go up against the big, bad, mighty Lightning to defend their Stanley Cup champion, to go back-to-back for the first time since 2016-17 where the Penguins did it against the San Jose Sharks and the Nashville Predators. And when you look at this series, it's pretty much going to boil down to two things if you're the Canadians. Carey Price, number one, and number two, will they continue to get the Production that they've received so far in this postseason from a one Cole Caulfield, Jesper Kotkanemi, can't pronounce his name, and then to have a guy like Corey Perry, who's been in this league for a million years, mostly with Anaheim, to finally get that Stanley Cup, to finally take the next step and be able to put the Canadians on their collective backs toward that 25th Cup in their franchise's history. Because we already know what Tampa's going to be. We already know what their keys are. If they're on a power play, we know how lethal they can be. We know how great of a defensive team they are. We also know their goalie will probably win the Vezina as the top goaltender in the sport. So to me, this is more about Montreal. And they're playing with house money here. Remember, they had 59 points in a regular season. They weren't expected to beat Toronto. They did do so. Obviously swept Winnipeg from here to the outer reaches of Manitoba, and then Vegas, they are cashing in whatever chips that they have left at the casino table because they're going home unhappy and looking at Montreal having a chance to upend this, I'm not going to say dynasty, but a team with a lot of youth, with a lot of cohesiveness that could form into a dynasty if they come out victorious with a series victory here. Now, The coach, Dominique Ducharme, of the Canadiens won't return until Game 3 because, as we talked about before, he was in the COVID protocol. And we also have Joel Armia, who plays on the line with Corey Perry as well as Eric Stahl. He didn't travel to Tampa due to being in the health and safety protocol. So we got to wait and see whether or not Armia is going to make the trip down, if he's in flight or en route right this second. But the Canadians are going to be shorthanded not only behind the bench as far as player personnel, but also their coach. To me, Montreal has to steal one of these two. If they go down 0-2, I can't see them coming back. 
And people could say, well, Jay Reels, they were down 3-1. Again, it's the Maple Leafs. Sorry to say that to my girl Robin Kelly north of the border, but there are the Maple Leafs for a reason. And if Tampa's going to be up 2-0, they're going to taste it. I think they were dealt their most harshest blow as far as not only just playing a physical, but also a mental, spiritual, and emotional series as the past one. Not to say that this is going to be a cakewalk by any stretch, but if Montreal does not steal one of two here, they have no shot of winning the series. And as I've said before, and I'll say it again, even with the Islanders series, after the Islanders won game one, it was a matter of them winning another road game in Tampa because as we've seen, Tampa has been a very good road team in this postseason. All right, they lost two games in Long Island. Maybe that's something that the Canadians can hang their hat on. But at the same time, we know Tampa, they could play on the road and they have the leadership to do so. So even if they win game one or game two, are they going to win game five or game seven? As we saw in the Islander series, they weren't able to get another road win and Montreal's going to have to do the same. And they may have to win more than one game on the road, especially in those first two games. If they steal the first two, huh, well, then all bets are off. But I understand that this is more of a heart pick than a head pick. But I think those Canadian ghosts, they're there for a reason. And the old form is not there anymore. I get that Maurice Rocket Richard, Jean Beliveau, Ken Dryden, Bob Gainey, Larry Robinson, Yvonne Cornier, uh, go down the list. They have risen here in this postseason to show why the Canadiens, despite their inactivity and ineptitude over the last 28 years, but they're in the cup final now. And something tells me, I think Montreal is going to pull off an upset. Right. If you're going to put my head on the chopping block, I'm going to say Tampa wins this series. But this is why we watch sports. This is why it's David versus Goliath, a team that's on the cusp of winning another cup and a team that, please, I can only imagine what their odds were coming into the postseason overall for them to get to this point, let alone win. So I'm picking the Canadians in six. And one other note for the NHL, the Seattle Kraken, who will raise the curtain on their franchise. And I know a lot of people, that's one thing you got to think about especially as I talked about the Islanders in their offseason, but for the other 29 or even 30 teams, I should say, the expansion draft, I believe, will be probably in the weeks to come. I don't know if it's going to take place before the NHL draft. I would think it'd be sometime after, but that's something a lot of the fans will have to think about when that time comes as to who's going to be exposed to where the Seattle Kraken will start to pluck players from all the teams throughout the league, well, they've hired their first coach and a one, Dave Hextall. He was the Maple Leaf assistant coach for the last two years. So I don't know, maybe the Seattle Kraken fan, although the three of them that are out there may have to sweat a little bit and wonder, why are we picking an assistant from the Maple Leafs who have been snake bit for the last, not only just 18 years, not being able to get out of the first round, but not winning a cup in 54 years? Well, We'll see what Hackstall does as he will be at the helm and behind the bench for their first ever game come this October. So I just thought I'd throw that in there. And now let's transition from the NHL to the NBA because as we're getting deeper into the conference finals and the big story will be tonight in Phoenix because the Suns will have an opportunity to get themselves 
back into a championship setting for the first time since Charles Barkley in the 92-93 season. And with Barkley being there in his first year many moons ago, and we all know Barkley is one of the great players that the history has ever seen. I believe a top 50 player overall. And we know that the championship that eluded them that year, based on the 93 Bulls going for their three-peat and successfully doing so in six games, him not winning that ring will forever, I don't want to say haunt him, I may be too strong, but I'm sure that's the one regret that he would love to have back that he was able to secure a championship, not for Phoenix, but to have that brass ring on his left or right finger. So now we have a scenario where after tonight, or who knows, maybe after Wednesday or Friday, depending on how long the series goes, there's another player who's an all-time great that is looking to reach his first NBA final, and that would be Chris Paul. We know the back of his basketball card, and I've been one over the years, if you've listened to this podcast, I've slaughtered him as far as some of his postseason foibles, going back to his days in New Orleans, and you can look this up, people. These, this isn't me pulling these stats out of my rear end, where he lost a game four in his building to the Denver Nuggets by 50-some-odd points and scored 68 points in the process as a team. You look at the series where, as a member of the LA Clippers, being able to have a 3-2 series lead against the Houston Rockets where he wasn't able to clinch a game six to move on to a conference final because Josh Smith and Corey Brewer bailed him out for where Houston won a game seven in their building, which to me always stuck to the back of his playoff basketball card. You can look at what happened in Houston, and that's another, that's just one big case. There's a couple of other cases with the Clippers. He didn't win a game seven, I believe, in his last go around with the Clippers before he moved on, where he lost to Utah in the first round to Gordon Hayward in his last year as a member of the Jazz. Also, 3 2 series lead. Granted, he had the hamstring and was hobbled, but the Rockets couldn't get over the hump against the Golden State Warriors. You can look at all these scenarios with Chris Paul, and rightfully so. But now, he could erase all that with a victory tonight. And with the way they've played here so far in the series, we talked about Game 1 last week when they played last Sunday. They were able to get that miraculous pass from Jay Crowder, the dunk by DeAndre Ayton with .9 seconds left, where they were down by a point, and that was pretty much the only play that they could do there with the time under a second left and for them to execute that in the crux of the game was just magnificent by Crowder and I understand the final few minutes of that game took forever to take place there was Bedlam on the court they had to get the Clippers back on the the five Clippers on the court because they didn't have any timeouts left they had to review the play we know how these NBA endings of these games it just seems to be interminable and that's something they have to do about they got to take care of that in the offseason. So I'll discuss that a little bit later on. But when the Suns took a 2-0 series lead going back to LA, and then the Clippers, we know that they needed in the worst way to get back in the series, and they did so behind Paul George, as well as Reggie Jackson had a very good game number three. Chris Paul did not shoot well in the game. And the Suns looked like, eh, all right, it was just a speed bump on the way to a series victory or at least a game series clinching victory which would be tonight or over the course of this week depending as I said how long the series goes but if anything game four 
was a throwback to 50 years ago because there was a stretch there in that fourth quarter when you look at the final score where both teams couldn't throw the ball in the ocean, especially the Clippers. They couldn't make a shot to save their lives. The game, it seemed like it was hanging in the balance for the longest time as to who's going to finally break through. And the Suns were able to do just enough. I know Paul George making free throws and him trying to throw the ball off the backboard there at the end. We know that, to me, that's like an onside kick. Because anytime a player, and I get he had to do that in that scenario, but whenever a player tries to brick a free throw and attempt to grab his own rebound of that, it seems as if 98 times out of 100, it goes the other way. It never falls in your favor when you try to force a missed free throw to get a rebound and a putback. And that's what happened. And Chris Paul did just enough there down the stretch. The Suns behind Devin Booker, who fouled out in the game there last night. And you figured that's where the Clippers would probably take a little bit of advantage or two nights ago. Because last night, of course, was Milwaukee, Atlanta. And even with Booker out, they weren't able to capitalize then. Anytime you could get the, in this case, the second best player on the team not performing or to foul out. And that's one that's going to bite you in the rear end in the long run. But give it up to the Suns, as I've said time after time. I never thought that they would be in this position. I thought they were a team that, despite them being trendy coming into this year, I had to see it and then believe it. And right now I'm a believer. Even with the way these games have ended, with all the reviews and taking a look at fouls and things of that nature. And I understand they want to try to get the call right. That's the whole point of this. But man, I wish that there could be a faster way or just a more seamless way. And we get with replay, they have to make sure with all the angles and get the reports from New York. And there's so many eyes looking at this play to make sure that they get it right. Understood. But man, it just kills the momentum. It kills the flow and really the suspense of these games. We could only hope Moving forward for the rest of both of the Eastern and Western Conference Finals, and especially in an NBA Final, that it doesn't come to that. That these games can be hotly contested, it could go down to the wire, and it doesn't have to be 9,000 reviews on who hit the ball out of bounds to where it just wrecks the flow of the game. So now we have a scenario where tonight the Suns could ice the Clippers, and I think the Clippers, I think they're still going to be heard from. I think they've played well in this postseason. Obviously, game two, they could have won that game. Game one was a tough turnaround coming back from finally getting past a conference semifinal to a conference final where they won late that Friday night before having to fly to Phoenix and then play a 12.30 local time in Phoenix, literally not even 36 hours later or roughly that. And yes, game four could have won either way. But the Clippers, they can only blame themselves for not making shots when they could have, especially during that stretch where they just had some terrible shooting. But I think they're going to be heard from. I wouldn't be surprised they win tonight, and I would not be surprised if they push it to a Game 7. And that's the one thing, when we look at this Clipper organization, they were down 0-2 in the first two series to come back and win that series. And I'm not going to predict and sit here and say that, oh, they're going to win this upcoming series as well. But for a franchise that has been... Just the bottom of the barrel. And yes, they did have success in the last decade. Lob City and Chris Paul, Doc Rivers, etc. But 
Sometimes it has to be that cataclysmic event. It has to be just a reversal of fortune, so to speak. Because it's never been easy for this organization to let alone win and get to a playoff, but also to go as deep as they have and even to get to a final and possibly win it. Well, it's right in front of them to take and for them to seize this opportunity because wouldn't this be something if the Clippers could steal a game in Phoenix tonight and then win in LA on Wednesday night to bring it to a game seven full circle to everything that I talked about at the very top of this podcast. Would you be surprised if that was the case? I wouldn't. And for whatever reason, I could see the Clippers being able to push this to a game seven. Paul George has actually played pretty well. Now, this isn't the time for him to let up. This isn't the time for him to go four for 16 with seven turnovers and shooting balls off the side of the baskets like he did last year against Denver. This is his time to rise and shine. And we don't know what the hell is going on with Kawhi Leonard. We saw him there in the press box the other night, him being all pumped up and excited by Mike Breen there on the broadcast, but uh, what's the word? Uh, You would think this is top secret Fort Knox with uh, his health and his circumstances, but who knows? Maybe is he looking to pull a Willis Reed if the series does go seven games and just to be on the bench to maybe come out for a few minutes? Who knows? I can't tell you. But the Clippers have shown some heart here this postseason, and I can't see it dying right now. I can't. And I will say this, if by chance that the Clippers do push the Suns to a Game 7 and lose, it shows how good of a coach Ty Lue is, and it does make you wonder how Doc Rivers has lost his fastball. And I get that nobody's going to compare Doc Rivers to Pat Riley or Phil Jackson or Greg Popovich, I understand. But for a guy who's won a championship with the Celtics and been back to another one, Two years later, as I mentioned in that tough Game 7 series against the Lakers in 2010. But for Lou to get everything out of this team, and minus Kawhi Leonard, if he does push it to a seventh game, what does that say about Doc Rivers? Just a little food for thought there. Now, as we transition to the Eastern Conference, the Bucks showed up in Atlanta after losing Game 1 to the heroics of Trey Young, another magnificent game one for him, just like you saw against the Knicks and the 76ers. 48-7-11, and what could you say? As they upended the Bucks in game one, and it kind of made you think, even with the extra day off that they had, remember, they beat the Nets on a Saturday night, and then the Hawks, not only did they have to win a game seven in Philly, but then travel back to Atlanta to go back to Milwaukee. And for the Hawks to get that game one, certainly made it a series. As we know, Atlanta coming into the series as an underdog. But then game two, what could you say? Milwaukee just annihilated them pretty much from the start. Winning by 34 points. Was it 125-91? So it wasn't even a contest. And then last night, where it was pretty much back and forth. The Hawks were in control. Actually had a seven-point lead there late in the game. And then Trey Young steps on the foot of the ref, turns his ankle. Has to go to get evaluated into the locker room. Comes back out. Not the same player. The Hawks take over. Chris Middleton, 20 points in the fourth quarter. The guy couldn't miss. And Giannis, backed by him and his performance, that not only just in his postseason, but what he's done here 
makes you think that Milwaukee may be able and ready to take that next step knowing that they're two wins away from an NBA final which they were two years ago against Toronto and we know how that unfolded but give it up for the Bucks. if Chris Middleton is going to play like that I'm not going to say the Bucks are going to be unbeatable but they are going to be tough to beat and Middleton we saw that there in game six versus the Nets where he had 38 points and with Middleton I get it he's not a guy that is going to light up the scoreboard night in and night out. But when he has moments like this, it makes you wonder, and I'm sure as a Buck fan, it probably frustrates you. It's like, watch him come back tomorrow night and he'll go 6 for 23 and have 18 points. And we get that players are going to have bad shooting nights and they're not going to be on point the way you saw Middleton there last night. But just the inconsistency has to drive you crazy because they're going to need, especially on the road, that type of contribution from your second best player. As we know, Giannis can't do everything, and Giannis isn't going to be all layups, putbacks, and dunks. And Giannis was able to show you a little bit of a post-up game, made a big three, was able to try to do more than just attack the basket. But to me right now, it's going to be more about the Bucks than it is the Hawks, because the Hawks have been resilient this whole postseason, as we've seen. And I would expect a big game in Game 4. Now, we have to wonder about the ankle of Trey Young because he did say that it's sore, it's hurting. I'm sure he's getting treatment on it as we speak, but if Young is going to be less than 100%, there is no shot in hell that the Hawks are going to make it not only past the game four, but to an NBA final. So the one thing you don't have to worry about, I think with Young, as I said a couple of weeks back, We know how cocky he is. We know he plays with a lot of swag. And at the same time, he's not fearful of the moment. But if he's going to be limited and he's going to be hobbled and he's not going to be able to get that explosiveness to the basket or to be able to get to whatever spot that he wants to get on the floor to shoot the three or to shoot a floater or any of that, again, it is going to be an uphill battle for this Hawk team to win. And we already know Bogdanovich has had a knee, which he hasn't been 100%. DeAndre Hunter hasn't been in the lineup. I'm going to look at this right now more from a Milwaukee Bucks standpoint because of what took place two years ago and even last year in a second round losing to the Miami Heat. We're really going to see what this team is made of come tomorrow night because if they can't smell blood in the water right now and barring a 50-point, 15-assist, 11-rebound game from Trey Young, there's no excuse as to why the Bucks can't leave Atlanta with two wins and try to ice this series in a fifth game in their building come Thursday night. Because this is a team that, for the last two years, have had the MVP. They had one seeds in both instances. They came into this year with a lot of expectations, a bit tempered because of what Brooklyn did and knowing that Kevin Durant was coming back and then the in-season trade with James Harden. Of course, the Sixers and... Joel Embiid and the season that they had. Boston, a lot of people thought that they were going to be formidable, but that wasn't going to be the case. And Milwaukee was the one team that, yes, you could say is waiting in the wings, but with the heartache of the last two postseasons, they were going to be on the radar as a team that had to show and prove come this time of the year. And up until this point, they have shown that and then some. So now they're going to have to seal the deal and win a game four in Atlanta. To me, I think that's going to go miles and it's going to mean a whole lot 
to that team and that organization to get that win because barring just an overwhelming game number four from Trey Young, it's going to be the same old Bucks, and it's going to make you wonder whether or not you could trust this team. So I'm going to look at how they perform tomorrow night to see if they're really going to put pedal to the metal or are they just going to kind of laissez-faire it until they really need to start playing and then they're going to fall short. So that's what I have to see with the Bucks, especially come tomorrow. I think they're going to win. I said Bucks in seven. And there's still plenty of series to go. I think the Hawks will play well and I think they're going to be valiant, but... It, to me, it's more about the Bucks, and we'll see how they perform here come tomorrow night. Now, a lot of news and notes throughout the league, especially with coaches, and I'll start from, I'm not going to say from small to biggest, but as far as storylines are concerned, the first one is Rick Carlisle. A lot of people thought maybe he would go to Boston after resigning as coach of the Dallas Mavericks. Well, he goes back to Indiana, so there is a little bit full circle with him. Remember, he coached the Pacers many moons ago, he goes back there, he's going to have a young team, it's going to be pretty much a rebuild job, I get it that they were part of the playing scenario, but when you think about the Indiana Pacers, you're not thinking of a team that's on the come up to be a four seed or even a top seed in the East next year, so a lot of work to be done, but kudos to Carlisle for getting that job and I'm sure he's going to do a fantastic job with that team. The Celtics hired the Brooklyn assistant, Ime Udoka. He has a track record there with the San Antonio Spurs, as you well know. The VP of basketball ops right now, Brad Stevens, who has a very good connection and close tie to Greg Popovich, the coach of the Spurs. I'm sure a lot of influence was there from Popovich to Stevens. And then, of course, the process of interviewing with Udoka. Odoko was on the bench with the Brooklyn Nets here this past offseason, or this past season, I should say. So we'll see what Udoka will do as coach of the Celtics, which I think, hey, you're going to get a young guy. You're going to get a good hire. He's coming from that Popovich tree. Why not? And as we all know, they're not going to get a retread. They're not going to get the veteran coach. This is a team that's going to be built for years to come, especially with the two cornerstones of Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. Now it's just a matter of what they're going to put around them. And we know Al Horford is already going to be part of this team. So we'll see what else Stevens has up his sleeve as we get deeper into this offseason. Speaking of the Mavericks, Jason Kidd, who Carlisle put in a good word for with the Mavs. And he goes full circle back to the team that drafted him in 1992. Now there was a lot of talk that with Kidd coming in, they also hired Nico Harrison as the GM of the team, who is a Nike exec that has strong ties with Luka Doncic. And Doncic, as we know, who toward the end of this offseason, or really toward the end of this postseason, when they lost to the Clippers in the first round, there were rumblings about he and Rick Carlisle not getting along, and maybe even some, shall I say, static between Luka and the front office. So by bringing in Nico Harrison, a guy who knows Luca very well from his Nike days, brings a little bit more stability and a little bit more comfort to the team, which to me, I get Luca is your franchise. I get that he's your guy. But do we really have to roll out the red carpet and the rose petals and the warm bath for this young star? 
I think it's a little too much, but I get it. This is 2021. This is how you have to pamper your athletes. You got to make sure that they want to stay, etc. I understand. I don't like it though. And I mean, please, you think they're rolling out a red carpet for Jason Tatum? Now I understand Tatum may not be on the level of Luca as far as young players in the league, but Tatum is certainly not chopped liver. And then there's been reports in the last few days that the relationship between Luka Doncic and Kristaps Porzingis has soured. And even though it's been refuted in certain places, but Kristaps, as I've said weeks ago, he's a guy that you can't trust. He's a guy that if Dallas could ship him somewhere elsewhere and they got to get a bad contract in return, they should do it. Chris Stapps, we all know how he came into the league. The unicorn, Kevin Durant coined that phrase by him. But even with the knee injuries and him being in and out of the lineup, he's a guy that one day, yeah, he may light up a scoreboard, but two days after that, he's going to show his true colors. And you saw that in the postseason with the Clippers by his point totals there, especially in the games five and six. so Or six and seven, excuse me. So that's all you need to know about that scenario. And then now to take it another level higher... The Portland Trailblazers hired Chauncey Billups as coach of the Trailblazers. Five-year deal. To now you're starting to hear some rumblings out of the Pacific Northwest. And Lord knows it's been hot up there. I believe temperatures are now in the mid, was it 106 I believe it was? Or the high is going to be close to that today? Well, the temps are going to get even hotter because reports have surfaced that Damian Lillard, who wasn't kept in close contact with the coaching search, but he threw his hat in the ring by wanting Jason Kidd to be the coach of the team. Now, you got to understand, Kidd is from the Oakland area where Damian Lillard is from, so there is a connection between those two. And obviously, those two being point guards, of course, he's going to lobby to have his guy to be a part of the franchise to coach this team to the next level as the West is... It's been over the years, been loaded, and Portland hasn't been able to get past the Golden States of the world, the Lakers of the world, the Denver Nuggets of the world. So with this report of Lillard being unhappy, which also ties into a scenario where Chauncey Billups many years ago had this incident with another teammate of the Celtics and Antoine Walker's old pad involving a woman and an alleged sexual assault how he wasn't down with that, how that's been exposed here in the days leading up to his hire. So who knows what this mess is going to amount as far as Billups being part of this team or even Lillard requesting a trade. So before the Knicks fan could get in an uproar and say, oh, here comes Lillard to the Knicks, let me shoot that down by saying, who are the Knicks going to give up to get Damian Lillard? It's not going to be R.J. Barrett and a million first-round picks. It's certainly not going to be Julius Randle either. And remember, his extension that he signed prior to last year, four years, $196 million, starts this year. So there isn't a guy on the Nick roster that makes anything close to what Damian Lillard makes. So to match up this trade would be near impossible unless you want to give up all your franchise's first-round picks. And remember, Damian Lillard is 31 years old. And I get that he's not 34 or his game is starting to decline. Understood. But it's not as if this guy is 26 years old and he's about to enter the prime of his career. So let's keep that in mind. If anything, 
Would you be surprised to hear of a Ben Simmons to Portland for Damian Lillard? Now, not straight up. Of course, Portland's going to want a lot more back. But with Simmons owed four years, I believe at $140 million, to match up with the $146, they'd have to throw in more money, more picks, whatever it is in the trade to match that. But to me, that seems to be more of a fit to put Lillard with Embiid and Tobias Harris. Harris wouldn't go in that deal. He'd cost too much. But you would think they're going to trade a guy like Matisse Teibel, some of their other young players on their team, and first-round picks would go in that deal if that were to be consummated. But this is something we have to keep our eyes on now because if Lillard is unhappy and if these reports are true, we're going to have a Damian Lillard watch all summer long, or at least for part of the summer, to see if he leaves Portland to go to another team. And speaking of Simmons, I'm sure you probably saw on first take with Stephen A last week where he received a text from somebody that he knows closely in regards to the embattled Sixer guard to where it was said that not only does Ben Simmons doesn't like to work, but he doesn't listen and everyone around him is family and is constantly babied. That's all you need to know. If that is the truth, you got to get him out of there. Because if all he has is yes men around him and he works and dances to his own beat and doesn't listen to authority or doesn't want to listen to the higher ups or whatever, that guy you got to get off your team pronto. And if that's coming from a good source, and that's Stephen A. And he's in tight with the league and for many, many years. And how could you not dispute that? So if I'm a Sixer fan, I would pack his bags, take him to the airport and let him know what destination he's going to go to. So something to keep in mind as we move along here throughout this summer. All right, now let's uh, turn the corner and head to the diamond as we'll get into what's going on in Major League Baseball. And now that we're one week into this implementation of the banned substances, the scenario where we have umpires going out and checking pitchers for foreign substances on their body, gloves, uniform, etc., How we could summarize this past week, you got a lot of agitated pitchers if your name was Max Scherzer or Sergio Romo, and I can understand why Scherzer's upset because Joe Girardi, the manager of the Philadelphia Phillies, in an act of gamesmanship, went out for a third time. Now, the umpires have to do it on their own volition to go to the pitcher and check them, and they not only checked Scherzer once, they actually checked him twice. So at a third time, Girardi made a mention to the umpire to check him. And that just infuriated Scherzer to the point where he's gesturing toward the Philly dugout. Girardi comes out. He's yelling and screaming at the umps. He gets ejected. And it became a whole hullabaloo to where now we're looking at the sport overall and you wonder, most of these pitchers, they're going to be on their best behavior to not get caught. And some pitchers have laughed it off. Some have just abided by the rules and just, Went about their business, Jacob DeGrom being the first one last Monday because they had a day-night doubleheader, or really it was a 5-10 first game, seven-inning doubleheader to where after the first inning, they went out, checked DeGrom, clean, no harm, no foul. But yesterday, we had an incident in Detroit where Hector Santiago, the lefty reliever, was inspected for obviously a foreign substance, And what they did is they found rosin in the glove to where they ejected him. 
And Santiago's just standing there with a big grin on his face, wondering what the hell was going on. And even in the post game, he mentioned that all he had on him was rosin. He usually puts rosin on both sides of his hands. So if he has rosin on his hand, and with it being hot in Detroit yesterday, and the rosin sticking to the glove, that's where he says the rosin was, or that's where it came from. And this is going to be a problem for Major League Baseball, because I could see if it was a scenario where, and they confiscated the glove, they're going to take it to New York and authenticate it and take a good look at it. But if the rosin was on the inside of his glove, and not on the outside or in the middle, and based on what I read, that's where it was, then they're going to have a serious problem as to what the rules are or when it comes to, let's say, rosin. And we know rosin is right behind the pitching mound, so it's not illegal by any stretch. And if it wasn't on his pants or his cap and it was inside his glove, they need to get together here, Major League Baseball and the umpiring crew, on whether or not if it's going to be on the glove or inside the glove that that could be used as permissible. And I understand it could be tricky. But if he puts rosin on the back of his hand, then maybe they should tell him you can't put it on your glove hand. Because if that's the case, you're going to get kicked out. You can only have it on your pitching hand. So even if it would have been permissible, considering rosin is a legal substance, but they have to then retool what the violation is to then only have it on his pitching hand and not anywhere else on his body, his glove, etc. Because from what I see, maybe Santiago shouldn't have been ejected. And it maybe needs to be a little bit more clear as to if that is rosin, that it doesn't need to or be anywhere near the glove, even if it happens to be inside the glove and it was on the back of his hand and he was sweating and it stuck to his glove, then that's it. No rosin on the glove hand. So I don't know if that's a fair shake. I don't know if that's something that could have been avoided, that when the memo came down, did that also mean to not have rosin on the other hand, even though it was a case where Santiago wasn't trying to cheat. And as it was, when Santiago was in the game, it's not as if he was pitching well. I believe he gave a couple of hits. I could see if he was striking out the ballpark, then maybe we could take a look. But you know they're going to do this at random. But the umpires have to get this right. Because could you imagine in a scenario where you have a starting pitcher or a reliever, it doesn't matter, and they have a situation where Rosin's in the glove and they're going to throw the guy out. And we know pitchers are going to be on their best behavior right now. You think they're going to go out there and they're going to put whatever type of substance to, even if it's in the back of the neck, you know, they're not going to do that. Because getting caught not only means the suspension, but you're going to have that black mark by your name for the rest of your career. So week one, eh, much ado about nothing until yesterday with Santiago. We'll see if there's going to be any fallout with that. And... I don't know if there's going to be a tweak of the rules. We'll see. But I thought it was just unfair considering that, hey, if he had it on both hands and who knows what the rules are. Could you not have rosin on both of your hands? And if it happened to get in the glove by accident, I mean, uh, who knows? I don't have the rules in front of me. And as far as the week goes, you had a lot of interesting scenarios, especially When you look out west with the Dodgers, they played the Padres three games in San Diego where they got swept, the Dodgers that is, and that was 
good for the Padres. It shows that they could play with this Dodger team. And you kind of wonder if this Dodger team is going to get on track this year. Because not only did they follow that sweep with a game against the Cubs and a four-game set for that matter, they were a combined no-hit by the Cubs after that. And it really made you think that, geez, this World Series hangover after 60 games and 33 years of not winning a World Series, it's really gotten to this team. Well, they did bounce back to win three in a row, so all is right in Dodger world right now. But now they have to host the San Francisco Giants, who come into Chavez Ravine, where the Giants right now have a three and a half game lead and a four game in the loss over the Dodgers. So if this is ever a critical series for the Dodgers right now, even in late June, then this is it. Because, all right, if they lose two out of three, they just lose a game in the standings. But coming off of what happened in San Diego, if they lay a big fat deuce on the diamond here at Dodger Stadium, then they're really going to be swimming upstream without a paddle. Again, four on the loss as it is. So they don't want to go any deeper or any further right now despite them approaching the midway point of the season. And speaking of the Padres, even with their big week against the Dodgers and then they had a weekend against Arizona to where they lost, uh, won two out of three, excuse me, they will lose Denelson Lamette, one of their key pitchers who started the season on the shelf now has forearm inflammation, so who knows if that's going to be a short-term deal or who knows. Could that be the dreaded ulnar collateral ligament that a lot of teams are hoping that's not the case? In this particular case, of course, San Diego. We know that their pitching has been top-heavy with Hugh Darvish and Blake Snell, so to get Lamette out of there for any extended period of time would certainly hurt San Diego more than would help them. Speaking of pitching, you had Aaron Nola tie Tom Seaver for striking out 10 consecutive Mets there on Friday. Ironically, it came right near where Tom Seaver originally had the record for so many years, 51 years that was. And Nola, who pitched well in the game but did not factor into the decision because the Phillies and their bullpen imploded late in that first game to where they lost 2-1. to one, And they were able to split four games against the Mets over the weekend. But when we take a look around the sport... And we talked about what's happening out West. Giants-Dodgers are going to be big coming this week starting tonight. The Brewers have a little bit of separation with the Cubs as they swept Colorado over the weekend. And we know Colorado has been dreadful on the road. They've only won six games on the road this year. And the Cubs, like I mentioned, they lost the last three of that series to the Dodgers out in L.A. And then when we look at the National League, this is a big week for the Mets right here because... The Mets, although they're four games ahead of the Nationals, who they play tonight in a makeup game down in the nation's capital, but they have to go to Atlanta for three after tonight, and then they play the Yankees at Yankee Stadium this weekend. And then people can say, oh, Jay Reels, the Yankees. Well, have you seen the Met-Yankee regular season rivalry over the years? The Yankees have killed us. And I get last year we split the six games. All right, whatever. But this has been a predominantly Yankee-favored series pretty much since its inception back to 1997. So I don't care what the Yankees look like this coming week, especially after getting swept, and I'll get to that in a minute. But big week for the Mets here. They got to see what they could do. DeGrom will pitch on Thursday. DeGrom finally gave up a run the other day against the Phillies, was actually human. He did pitch six innings, gave up two runs, five hits, and struck out six. So I struck out five. 
So the Grom wasn't the Grominant as he was when he pitched, I believe, somewhere in the to where he pitched over 30 consecutive scoreless innings. But he'll pitch Thursday down in Atlanta, so he will not see the Yankees this coming weekend. But the Mets will see Garrett Cole, so stay tuned for that. And then with the Braves, who obviously have been up and down, they'll have a shot at the Mets here this week. So very big week for the Mets to just kind of keep themselves at arm's length and maybe even more with these upcoming four games against Washington and Atlanta before they invade the Bronx this weekend. And speaking of which, I don't know if it's going to be the Yankees' year this year. Because for whatever the reason... When they get on these streaks where they look like they're going to bounce back and they look like they're going to be in the mix, they regress, but in awful fashion. Think about this. They came off of a series where they won two out of three against Oakland and bad base running and bad situational hitting aside. And then after losing the first game in Kansas City, they came back, beat them in a walk-off in the middle game on Wednesday and then blew him out there on Thursday to go to Boston and to get three extra base hits throughout the course of a weekend. Three. A double by Gio Urshela on Friday, a home run by DJ LeMahieu on Saturday, and then Aaron Judge's home run down 6 nothing yesterday to where he had a chance to even the game in the seventh inning. Bases loaded, two outs, and he popped up to the first baseman. The Yankees at 40-37 and 37 right now, six games in the law, six and a half behind the Red Sox, you got to wonder, will they be able to have a run or at least some sort of consistency to where they're going to be close or at the top of this division this year? Now, granted, the Red Sox, I think, have overachieved. And it just goes to show you how big the manager has been because he's done a phenomenal job trying to balance that pitching rotation. Yes, their bullpen is pretty good. Their lineup is formidable, but still... Anybody other than Alex Cora, you got to wonder whether or not he would have gotten this production. Tampa is Tampa. Remember, they hit the skids here recently, but they're hanging around. And they played the Red Sox last week to a very competitive series. And as you can see, they're just the game and a loss behind them. Toronto is ahead of the Yankees right now. That is a competitive division. And when you look at the other two, you know, White Sox and Indians, you figure the White Sox are going to come out of there clean, even though they're only a game back at a loss, but two and a half in the behind the pale hose. And then out west, it's going to be Houston and Oakland. But the Yankees right now, they really have to consider what this team's going to look like, especially as we get toward the All-Star break. And I'm not going to sit here and say they're going to blow it up or this team's going to go backwards. Or, But you got to wonder. We're already 77 games into the season. And other than maybe a couple of stretches, mostly against bad teams... They have been mediocre. Now watch. As I said that, they'll have a big week against the Angels forthcoming and then they'll either take two out of three or sweep the Mets and have their own celebratory 4th of July firework party at the expense of the blue and orange New York Mets. So there I go, putting it out into existence and then watch the Yankees turnaround will start tonight. But baseball right now, as we get to the halfway point, the only thing I'm going to say when we look at all these divisions and the races, it is very top-heavy. I get that the National League East and the American League East is, I'm not going to say up for grabs, but would you be surprised that any of these teams, if they go on a run, and Yankees included, that they'll get close to first place or even 
be in first place maybe by the end of July or mid-August. And the same for the National League East because it's not as if the Mets are running away and hiding. We know the NL West is going to be competitive. The Central you think will be Brewers and Cubs. I don't know if the Cardinals are going to be in it this year. We talked about White Sox and Indians. What it boils down to, people, is who are going to be those five teams that are going to come out. And chances are we can look at it from the periphery and say, yes, it may look like it's going to be White Sox, Houston, you figure Oakland will be that other wildcard team, and then who's the second wildcard team out of the East? And then same for the National League. It's going to be, chances are, whoever comes out of the Central, and then the East, and you may have a scenario where your two wild cards will be in the NL West between the Dodgers, Padres, or Giants. Take your pick. I mean, that's what we see right now. We understand it's still another half plus of a season to go. But if you're going to look at it for right this moment, that's how this baseball season is shaping up because you're not going to trust the Mariners. You're not going to trust the Reds. The Cardinals you could trust based on their history and their pedigree, but they have really hit the skids here. The Braves, for all they've done the last three years, you can't think that they're going to come back into this race, but with the way the East is, and like I said, the Mets not running away with it, is it impossible? Absolutely not. So, we shall see, people. Baseball is going to be hotly contested. The summer is just getting started, and the weather is certainly heating up, and we'll keep our fingers on this pulse throughout the rest of the summer. All right, before I get to a couple of NFL news and notes, which would take precedence over this next topic, but we have some breaking news coming out of Wimbledon. And a top-seeded player has bowed out in straight sets. No, it's not Novak Djokovic. It is Stefano Tsitsipas. Yes, he of the French Open final who went at it with Novak Djokovic, who had that two-love set lead. And squandered it over the last three sets to where Djokovic was able to become the French Open champion. Well, guess what? The road for Novak Djokovic to get that third calendar Grand Slam. Because as we all know, he has the aforementioned French Open and Australian Open in his back pocket. Well, the path has gotten a lot easier because he has been upended in straight sets by an American of all people. Hate to say it that way because... The men's American tennis game has been non-existent over the last 15 years or so. But a one Francis TFO, I don't know where he's from. I know he's from this country, but he beats Sitsipas in straight sets, 6-4-6-4-6-3. So man, one of the top ranked, and he's ranked third in the world, and a guy that was probably going to be the most formidable opponent if your name is not Alexander Zverev or Daniel Medvedev to dethrone a one Novak Djokovic. So that's some startling news coming out of the old English club as once again, Stefano Tsitsipas, third overall in the world, loses in straight sets to a one Francis Tiafo. So for the five tennis fans out there that are listening to this, I know you got to be falling in your chairs if you have not heard the news come through from Wimbledon. So with that, and I'll start with the men's. We know that Rafael Nadal's not going to take place. He's listening to his body. And surprising from this regard, I know I didn't touch on a lot last week. There were so many other things to discuss, but 
for Nadal and his competitive nature. And we know he had that epic third set and the loss at the French Open, that semifinal that he had. You would think the competitive nature of a one Rafael Nadal, knowing that Djokovic just won his 19th Grand Slam overall and he's going for 20 right here, which would match not only Nadal, but also Roger Federer, who's also performing in this tournament. And we don't expect much out of him to get deep into this Wimbledon. But for Nadal, you would think, and granted, two weeks after that epic match, to him to have to go back out there, and right, he knows his body more than anybody, but I thought he may have would have given it a shot, knowing that Djokovic is right there nipping on he and Fed's heels to become all equal with 20 Grand Slams. Let's see if he's going to gear up and be ready for US Open because I would think he wasn't there last year and with the restrictions in this country pretty much being lifted throughout from east to west coast, you would think he's going to be primed and ready to go for that event. And all you have to say now with Tsitsipas out of there, who is going to be the guy that's going to do their best to stop Novak Djokovic from getting that third Grand Slam this year. Is it going to be Alexander Zverev? Is it going to be Daniel Medvedev, who are the other top two guys on the circuit? It's not going to be Roger Federer. And if Federer does get that deep or that far where he faces Novak Djokovic, that's already a win in my book. Because Federer, we all know, 39 years old, he's coming back from these knee injuries. He bowed out of the French there, withdrew himself just as a tune-up, which a lot of people were in uproar over. And I can understand why. It's like, hey, try to finish what you started. But to me, this is a cakewalk for Djokovic. And it would be an upset if he doesn't. And you'd have to wonder what the excuse will be. And we understand he's coming off of a French Open just two weeks ago. We talked about the matches there with Nadal and Tsitsipas. But here we are. Djokovic has a clear view right to the final. And that third Grand Slam, which has only been done once since 1968 I know a few weeks back I said it's been 60 years but since 68 where Rod Laver won the Grand Slam that's all four Grand Slam titles in one year and if Djokovic does that I mean geez I tell you a a feat an accomplishment that hasn't been done in that long and knowing that he's going to be that much closer and I'm sure once word gets to him and by the way Djokovic did win his first set today after dropping the first set 6-4 he won the next three sets so when news gets to him that Tsitsipas is exited stage right, I'm sure he's going to have a raised eyebrow and think, oh, geez, all the pressure is really going to be on me to win this tournament. So we'll continue to keep our eyes on that. And then on the women's side, I know a lot of people are going to think Serena is going to be the one to win with Naomi Osaka, of course, not performing here at this tournament. And then on top of that, you have Simona Halep, who was the Defending champ last year, she's not going to participate because of the calf injury that she suffered in Rome prior to the French Open and did not play in the French Open at all. So you have to wonder, Serena Williams, who is looking for that 24th championship, Grand Slam championship at that, to match Margaret Court, is this going to be her opportunity to do so? Who knows what's going to happen with some of the other top women's uh, tennis players on the circuit, whether your name is Petra Kvitova or even the I can't pronounce the woman who won the French Open here, the Russian girl. But Serena, who has fallen short here in these tournaments, going back to the Australian, she didn't make it out of the fourth round here at the French. I I don't know. Right now, I'm going to say she's not going to make it to a final. 
And I'm not saying that as a reverse jinx, but who knows? I'm sure she's amped and ready to go and it's going to put forth a hell of a performance. But at 39 years of age and even with one win away, sometimes youth, maybe not experience, but just overall vitality and having a lot more energy to burn than a one Serena Williams may just be enough to upend her hopes of trying to win a Wimbledon championship. So the women's is wide open. I couldn't even tell you people. I'm sorry. I mean, the men's side I have a little bit better grip of. And right now it's looking like Djokovic. I mean, how could you not? But the women's side, uh, again, I couldn't even tell you. But it should be an interesting tournament. First time we'll get to see the green grass, the old England club, as it raises the curtain on the tournament for the first time in two years. Pretty much the Super Bowl of tennis and will continue to be peeled to the events that take place across the pond. Now quickly, let me get to a couple of NFL notes. The Steelers released David DeCastro, and I know this is going to hit home as a huge Steeler fan. He was released where the Steelers will save $8.75 million on the cap. He was owed $14 million this year. Final year of his contract, it was a non-football injury designation. I believe he had an ankle injury. I don't know how he suffered it, but it hadn't healed 100%, and the Steelers just decided to cut bait. They signed Trey Turner, formerly of the LA Chargers. You figure he's going to take his place. And they also have Kevin Dotson, who, as a rookie, performed very well for the Steelers last year. But for a team that lost their center and all-pro Pro Bowl Marquise Pouncey and then now to lose to Castro, who may be considering retiring at this point, that is two-fifths of a line that was pretty much hurting last year. And we all know the Steelers need their offensive line to be intact, especially in pass protection for one Ben Roethlisberger. Let's see if the signing of Turner and Dotson is going to be enough because they're going to need... We understand they don't grow on trees, but they're going to need offensive line aplenty in order for this team to succeed this year. That's all there is to it. They have the position players. They have the newly minted drafted running back. They also drafted the tight end from Penn State and Fryermuth. So no excuse, but they do have to pass protect and of course run block. And if they don't have the horses to do so, it could be another long season for this team. So something to keep in mind there. And the Jets also signed, speaking of reinforcements, Morgan Moses, formerly of the Washington football team, to add depth to an offensive line that has last year's first-round pick in Mekhi Becton, this year's first-round pick in Elijah Vera Tucker. And as we know, here in this town, they're going to need it to make this year's number two overall pick and a one, Zach Wilson, the quarterback, to make his life a hell of a lot easier. So the Jets did get some reinforcements there, so good for them. And we're just less than a month away, I believe what? Exactly four weeks away, so you're looking at the 25th or so of July before training camps open. And as I said before, and I'll say it again, I can wait till football season. That's right, can, C-A-N, not can't, can wait. Because summer's just starting, baseball, I'm into the other stuff. Football is the last thing that's on my mind, so I'll just leave it at that. But what I won't leave at that is not concluding with my hero and zero of the week. So here we go, people, before we say goodbye to episode 200. My hero of the week is Las Vegas Raiders defensive end Carl Nassib, who is the first active player coming out as gay, as he announced earlier this week through Instagram, I believe. 
he feels that the time was right. He didn't want to draw any attention to himself, which let's face it, he did. But by him coming out to represent and also to be visible for him, which was very important, not only for the community, for LGBTQ, but also for himself, considering he plays a sport that is barbaric, that is macho, that is egotistical, etc. And not only that, he wants to cultivate a culture that's accepting, compassionate. He's also donating $100,000 to the Trevor Project, which is towards suicide prevention for the LGBT community. So kudos to you, Carl Nassib. All the best to you, my guy. You are my hero of the week. And my zero of the week is Kansas City Chief Defensive End Frank Clark, who was arrested in L.A. on suspicion of having an Uzi in his bag after being pulled over for a vehicle violation last Sunday evening. All right, he gets pulled over, fine, whatever. But to have an Uzi sticking out of a bag, I mean, did you not think to put it in the trunk or did you not think to zip it up? All right, first off, you could say, what are you doing carrying an Uzi? All right, I get that. But to have it exposed... For the cop to shine the light in the back, of course I wasn't there, I don't know, but anytime you're carrying an Uzi, a machine gun of that caliber, and for you to just not put it away or even to think, why should I be driving with this? Maybe I should keep this at home. If he needs to protect himself, why is he going to use that? He's not going to have enough time to go back there if he's in some sort of dispute. Not that I ever wanted to come to that, but you get what I'm saying, people. You had to be a little bit more smarter than that, my guy, so you... On my zero of the week. So that'll do it, people. 200 episodes in the books. I appreciate you all for taking the time out to listen to what it is I have to say. As I'm sure you heard from the very top, to please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast because I'm going nowhere, people. I've done 200. As long as I'm alive and breathing, I plan to do 200 and, God willing, 2,000 more. So please, with your duty of posting this on social media, sharing it with your friends, making sure that you go to wherever app to subscribe, rate, and review to increase the visibility of this podcast. I would sincerely and greatly appreciate it. If you want to hit me up on any of my social media accounts, you could do so at the following on Instagram, J Reels or the J Reels podcast, which is strictly sports on Twitter, J Reels one, just a number on Facebook, the J Reels podcast fan page, or if you want to send me a DM on any of the aforementioned social media accounts, or an email at the jreelspodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, criticism, or praise, please feel free to do so. I'll be sure to get back at you. And lastly, if you want to contribute to the podcast, this endeavor that I've been doing here for the last three plus years, you could do so at www.patreon.com slash the jreelspodcast. That's P as in Paul, A-T as in Tom, R-E-O-N as in Nancy.com. What that does is put forth whatever collection, whatever you want to contribute to the upkeep of the website, to the production of this podcast, the equipment to make it bigger and better for you guys so that I could continue to pump out these podcasts on a weekly basis and coming soon, God willing, twice a week. As you know, I'm a one-man operation, or you may not know that, but I do everything. I am the personal assistant i'm my own advertising marketing everything people so i'm doing this as a one-man band because this is what i love to do this is my passion it's in my blood it's in the dna i've been talking sports pretty much since birth anytime that i could get my opinions my analysis to voice my disdain or pleasure on everything and anything that's happening on the world of the diamond 
the ice, the gridiron, the hardwood, the golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Center, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels podcast, on the flip, baby.